Hello, welcome to the Collaborative Inquiries podcast. This podcast comes to you as part of the Collaborative Inquiries in Christian Theological Anthropology project funded by the John Templeton Foundation and Villanova University. This podcast series will introduce you, the listeners, to the Collaborative Inquiries project fellows and mentors, as well as other established scholars whose research deals with topics such as human nature, virtues and vices, economics, race, disability, memory, human psychology, sin, and grace. We hope that they will be illuminating. Welcome to episode four of the Collaborative Inquiries podcast. My name is Dylan Belton, and I will be your host for today. Today's guest is Dr. Angela Carpenter, Assistant Professor of Religion at Hope College in Michigan, where she is a teacher and scholar of theology and ethics in the Reformed tradition. Dr. Carpenter is also a research fellow for the Collaborative Inquiries in Christian Theological Anthropology Project. While deeply rooted in Reformed theology, Dr. Carpenter's research also engages contemporary scientific understandings of the human person in psychology and anthropology. Her first book, Responsive Becoming, Moral Formation in Theological, Evolutionary, and Developmental Perspective, was published by TNT Clark in 2019 and was awarded the Dallas Willard Book Award. It is a brilliant work in interdisciplinary theology. Currently, Dr. Carpenter is working on a second book, which will bring together reformed theology, evolutionary anthropology, and social psychology. It will explore the psychology of grace and its ramifications for how we think about moral agency and social institutions. Our discussion today covers her past and current research, as well as questions regarding the place of the sciences and theological scholarship. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Angela Carpenter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dylan. I'm happy to be here. So I thought we could begin with just um, a bit about you and some autobiographical details. So yeah, for the sake of the heroes, why don't you tell us, um, for the listeners, why don't you tell us um, uh, a bit about yourself, where you're teaching now, what did you study, where did you study, etc.? Absolutely. Um, so currently I'm teaching in the religion department at Hope College. Um, I teach a lot of theology courses, some ethics, some combination theology and ethics. Uh, my training was at the University of Notre Dame in the theology department in Christian ethics slash moral theology. Uh, prior to that, I was working in ministry. So I was working in Louisville, Kentucky at an urban congregation, basically doing church-based social work. Um, after my master's degree, I started working at this congregation, started a family, had a few kids, and then decided, you know, I think I want a PhD with a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And Interesting. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> went back to Notre Dame. And so I, it's, it's actually relevant to my work because I was going through the doctoral program as a, a parent of two small children. Um, and that actually really shaped my interest in in mm. profound ways. So, yeah. Oh wow, I did I didn't know that. That that makes total sense now that I've uh, that I've read your work. So, you has a more personal question. Maybe was there something that led you to want to do the PhD that arose from your your work in ministry, or? So I was doing you know really practical, hands on, you know food pantry, giving emergency assistance, that kind of stuff, and kind of a liaison between the congregation and needs in the community. And at the same time, I was thinking, you know, what what makes some people be really committed to doing this kind of work? And other Christians just not seem to think that, you know, concern for the poor is integral to their Christian identity. <laughs> like. Um, what is that all about? And um, that I had my first daughter, and she was um, a beautiful sleeper. Not everyone's experience with a first child, but um, I was on maternity leave, and she was sleeping through the night, taking long naps, and I had, like, had all this free time. All of a sudden, <laughs> I think I'm going to read some theology, um, try and see if I can figure out these like questions that I have. And that, that kind of propelled me back into academics with questions that had arisen from that time in ministry. Okay. And, and, and why Notre Dame out of interest? Because, um, I mean, 
you're not a Catholic, if I can say so. And so, what, what was was there was there a pull, a specific pull to the Department of Notre Dame? Well, I had done the master's degree at Notre Dame about oh, a right. decade okay. before, so I was already familiar with the department then, um, and and knew that I really appreciated, at least within moral theology, the um, ecumenical and kind of communal um, ethos that is really maintained and valued there. Uh, so that was definitely a substantial draw. Okay. And you worked under Jerry McKenney, right? Yes. Was he your... Okay. Yeah, so he was my doctoral advisor, um, but, you know, so many wonderful people at Notre Dame. Right. So, especially in, in moral theology, I, I love them all. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I, as you know, I'm a what's called a triple doma. Uh, yes. So I, I, I was at I was at Notre Dame. Some would say way too long. Um, okay, so Angela, look, I thought well, my husband um, likes to joke that I I make him move back to South Bend every ten years. So far. <laughs> All right, Angela. I thought, yeah. Why don't we just jump right now into your into your first book? And I'm presuming that was your your dissertation work. So, yes, I had I had the opportunity also with a postdoc to revise it substantially and add a, a second interdisciplinary chapter. So it was heavily revised, but it was originally my dissertation. Yeah. Okay. So let me maybe I can start by just giving my sense of what the book is about. So the book is Responsive Becoming, Moral Formation and Theological Evolutionary Developmental Perspective. Right, yeah. 2000, published 2019. It is a fantastic yes. book, um, and oh, I, I, I really loved reading it. And I do a lot of interdisciplinary work myself, as you know, so it was just wonderful to see someone handle interdisciplinary work with such nuance and clarity. And so um, I'm really looking forward to the new book, um, whenever, Thank hopefully you. that comes out soon. <laughs> um, okay, so no, I took... <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, okay, so the book as far as I understand it, is a book, constructive account of the doctrine of sanctification from a reformed reform perspective. So that, in a nutshell, that's your yes. aim. Okay. So why, yes. don't, why don't we just begin there then? What's the, well, what was the issue, I guess, that you were trying to address? So what, what led you to want to, to do that specific issue, the doctrine of sanctification? And then, and then maybe we can start talking about, after that, how you started drawing, drawing from um, disciplines outside of theology. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as we've already discussed, you know, I was interested in moral formation, moral commitment. Um, so that is, as Protestant, what drew me to the doctrine of sanctification. Within the discipline of Christian ethics, as you're probably aware, the conversation has focused mostly on virtue ethics. So I had this intuition that talking about sanctification, um, sort of old-fashioned, but actually had something to contribute to the conversation that wasn't currently being voiced. Um, so that was, that was part of the aim, just in terms of the kind of research that um, was at the time, and I think continues to be the focus of work in moral formation. Uh, my particular sort of driving questions as I was working on this project were sort of twofold. So on the one hand, I wanted to think about sanctification, which I think it, there can be problems just equating sanctification with moral formation, but I think most people would agree that sanctification will at least have some overlap, that there's a moral aspect to sanctification, whether Hopefully, or not yes. we want to reduce reduce it to moral formation or not is another question. So for me, that raises questions about human nature. So what do we make of the a process of sanctification as um, something that is part of one's spiritual journey in terms of its overlap with natural human processes of moral formation, such as those that we can observe and do observe in small children? all the time. So here you're already seeing kind of the overlap going through graduate school as a parent. Um, mm. I was thinking about thinking about children and, and children's formation. Um, so I don't think these are the same thing, but I don't think they're entirely different either. At least that was my intuition going into the project. So I wanted to explore that some more. And then um, 
deeper issues of grace and nature. We talk about sanctification as a gift of God. Um, Catholics, Protestants, all Christians who are um, not Pelagian will agree mm-hmm. on that point. Um, but that has traditionally raised questions about human agency, human effort. Um, so I knew I wanted to explore those more deeply as well. I think there, there is a risk, especially on the Protestant side, to want to marginalize the kind of natural processes of formation, at least within some strands of Protestant thought. And so... So I wanted to think more deeply about how these could be seen in the light of God's grace, um, not something opposed to or um, just simply irrelevant. Yeah. That was a really long answer, so there's probably a lot to sort of pause and yeah, sift no, through there. Yeah, sure. No, no, it was it was, it was perfect. Um, so I wonder if you could, yeah, maybe say a bit more about how you differentiating yourself or, or how you're working with the, the virtue tradition that you mentioned there? Because I understand there's a lot of Protestant theologians who turn to the virtue tradition, which, which typically was thought to be Catholic. So you, I mean, you're not, you're going along with that, but you're also trying to like, uh, yeah, carve out your own kind of position in that whole uh, debate. Right. Yeah. So the way I see it, and you're absolutely right that so many Protestants, especially when I was writing the book, the most recent work in Protestant ethics on moral formation had all been within the sort of umbrella of virtue theory, Um, you know, in very unusual ways, you know, like Lutheran virtue theory, like Mm -hmm. Luther hated Aristotle, you know. (laughs) So, um, so, so yeah, that was definitely the, the primary academic conversation at the time the way i and, see and, and if i can interrupt quickly who, who would be some of the main figures there because i know there's like stanley Hauerwas and uh right absolutely Hurt, uh, jennifer Hertz's book um came out right around the time i started the doctoral program so definitely a really important interlocutor and, and absolutely a fantastic book i mean she diagnoses so many of the problems within the protestant trajectory of thinking about um, grace and nature and human action. And so I was reading that going, okay, but I also want to like save some of these thinkers, um, mm-hmm. avoid their problems and also um, retrieve some of their insights too. So yeah, the way I kind of see the conversation with virtue theory is, you know, virtue, as you know, is um, very much focused on habituation and practices. And I'm not opposed to thinking of moral formation in those terms. Um, But one thing that I think is maybe not the focus of that conversation that um, reformed perspectives on sanctification add in. So it's sort of like a shift in focus rather than um, an opposition. I'm not trying to argue against something. But the shift in focus there is... um, putting those kinds of behaviors within a relational context. So for Calvin and for many other Reformed thinkers, sanctification occurs uh, within the context of the human relationship to the divine, the indwelling Holy Spirit. And it's important for many thinkers in this tradition. Of course, there's diversity as well. But this is an affective relationship. Um, So knowing that God loves me provides a a foundation for the kind of transformational journey that I'm on into the image of Christ, which I think is, again, not in opposition to virtue theory, but perhaps not Mm -hmm. an emphasis that comes across very clearly. Um, And I think it also had the potential, and I've actually sort of seen this um, sort of bear some fruit in some initial um, conversations, had the potential to connect moral formation and spiritual formation more closely together. I think there's an an intuition that these are should be linked. Someone becomes more spiritually mature, they should there should be moral fruit to that as well, but providing a conceptual framework to kind of link those mm. things together. So yeah, because I 
to go off the the relational thing there. I mean, when I was when I was trying to talk to myself about what I learned from reading your book, I I thought you're focusing on that relation. Let's say the relation of being loved unconditionally by a father. Right. This is the main thing parent, you want to focus. Yeah. A parent. Sorry, a parent. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. A parent. Um, and that relation then establishes a kind of new new so to speak, milieu of sort, or it can, hypothetically, a new milieu right. by which you can then undergo a transformation, spiritual and moral. So you you want to focus on that relation and the kind of milieu it can establish. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, the the analogy to children's moral formation is just super helpful here because habituation, I think, has dramatically different outcomes if it takes place within the context of a flourishing, loving family, as opposed to to one that is not. You know, you can have habituation in both of those contexts that on the surface would look very similar, but the outcome in terms of the developing person might be very different. Yeah. Okay, so you, I, I know in the first half of your book, you turn to, and hopefully I can get these right now, I know there's Calvin, then there's John Owen, and the last one, I'm forgetting, Bush, Bushnell. Bushnell, yeah. Okay, so I don't think the latitude are that well known, but... Um, not at anyways, all, no, not outside the, you know, sort of insular circles of reformed right. theology, for sure. Right, so, we, you know, we don't have to go into details about all those figures, but, for you know, for someone like myself who's inter- interested in inter- interdisciplinary work, it was just nice the way you set it up, because you let the theological debate kind of drive the the text. So you start off with these three figures, you set out the issue of sanctification in relation to uh, the the moral formation of children, and then you go into the scientific um, literature. So I thought before getting into the scientific literature, maybe could you give a bit of a hint of what some of the the issues there with those three figures that you looked at and how they deal with this issue of sanctification in families or children? Yeah, absolutely. And I I do want to say I'm so glad that you noticed that Starting out with a theology was a a really important methodological choice for me, just in terms of interdisciplinary work more broadly. So so we can talk more about that later. Um, But these three figures, I think, kind of set up a tension in uh, Reformed theology and thinking about human action and the transformation of human action as it relates to grace. So Calvin locates sanctification in a very relational context. So in fact, Calvin says something to the effect of knowing that God is a loving father is the foundation, the starting point for sanctification. It's sort of everything flows from there. Um, so there, there's a very um, psychological aspect, which mm. a lot of people have not liked about the reformers and think has been problematic. Um, so I don't want to say that the, that's an unproblematic trajectory, but you know, Calvin very much frames human transformation in this relational parent-child kind of context and setting. So the question for me then is, okay, what what happens to actual children as they're being formed in families? So I, I, there are some unresolved tensions to my mind in Calvin's thought that get taken in different directions. So John Owen and Horace Bushnell are sort of just exemplary figures of how this can go in different directions. So for example, John Owen is very suspicious of what we might call natural formation or natural virtue. He thinks that this is a good thing, it exists, but it's not particularly related to God's grace. And in fact, could even be an obstacle to God's Mm. grace. John Owen is very, very concerned about the British context and um, the figures that he sees as semi-Pelagians in that context. So um, the the historical context is important for understanding his thought and his concerns. But basically, Owen wants to say, look, you can't have a doctrine of sanctification that isn't explicitly talking about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. You can talk about grace in a general sense, and I think this is something that we have a temptation to want to do today, to kind of harmonize grace and nature, is to say that, you know, God's agency and human agency are non-competitive, so 
we kind of don't have to worry about a conflict. And, and I think that's true to an extent. I, I certainly don't have any um, problems with talking about divine agency and human agency as being non-competitive. But I think there's more to be said. If you're not telling a story that talks about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, then you then something is missing here. And then that's right. really the key insight that John Owen just really insists on, even though I think his um, bracketing of natural processes as being sort of incidental or irrelevant to grace is ultimately problematic. Um, but I think that that's a real crucial insight that he has. Horace Bushnell, really fascinating figure. Um, he is actually very interested in real human children. <laughs> and <laughs> he, uh, so the, the primary text of his that I use is talking about the formation of actual children. And he, in many ways, has remarkable insights way ahead of his time in terms of child development in the family and parent-child relationships that in many respects fit well within developmental psychology of our day. And he was also in, I think, very important and under-recognized ways, um, a follower of Calvin's theology. So he wants to talk about natural moral formation as being a, a work of the Holy Spirit and happening in the context of the embodied parent-child relationships. Mm. So that's kind of providing the other side to that. But then the, the danger there is, does this get just reduced to parent-child relationships? Mm. Um, so that's kind of the tension that we come to at the end of the theological section of the book. Right. Or at least the initial theological section yeah. of the book. Yeah, then, sure. then we take some time for science, then we come back to the theology. <laughs> right. it, was, it doesn't end there. Yeah. Well, I mean, the way, you've, the way you've just put it now, though, makes it seem like the, the transition to, to the sciences actually flows quite naturally, so to speak. I mean, if, if other people much earlier are already concerned with childhood and what happens with, in childhood and how to think about that, then what you're doing really is just saying, like, look, that's already been raised by theologians. Now let's just do it in a more rigorous, careful, and interesting way in dialogue with, with the relevant sciences. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I thought very early on, if I really want to talk about natural processes of formation, I'm going to have to have some kind of access to natural processes of formation. Mm. And for Horace Bushnell, this is sort of a kind of informal, this is my observation of what happens in families. And I think all of us as theologians are doing that to a certain extent, right? You know, we're, whether we acknowledge it or not, we are using our own experience and drawing on our own experience. So let's be explicit about that and let's be rigorous about it. So, right. um, so yeah, I wanted to think, okay, what, what other disciplinary approaches would be helpful to me here? So I also read you, though, saying... Like you, you want the sciences to also what like confirm theological insights or resonate with theological insights. There's 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 kind of there's a couple of different ways you phrase that, right? So, right. Um, so yeah. So how were you thinking about that? Because I yeah. Because on the one hand, it seems like well, the, the, I don't want to say apologetic, but there's something like that, right? You want you think the theological claims have to resonate. Or, or in some ways, or be confirmed in some ways by the sciences. Otherwise, what? Otherwise, we're just sort of talking to ourselves, or or we're we're in danger or something. Um, anyway, so how, yeah, how were you thinking about it now in terms of why I'm turning to the sciences? What do I want confirmed? Um, and yeah, let me see what you have for that. Sure. Well, I guess to get to the first part of that question, the core concern here is that if theology is not at all accountable in some way, shape, or form to human experience, and obviously this is like a huge theological debate with a really lengthy history, right? So, um, but just to put my cards on the table, if theology is not accountable to some way, in some way to our experience, I think it's just ultimately gonna fail. So, because we're going to continue to encounter in our everyday life, hey, this doesn't resonate. This doesn't match up. This isn't describing 
or connecting in any way with actual human life as I'm living it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's a disservice to our religious communities if we don't take that into account from the beginning in our theology. That's not to say, and I'm talking explicitly about human experience here broadly, um, because that's not to say that theology should just like bow to the sciences and take um, the findings of a particular scientific discipline as um, the gold standard that everything has to be accountable to. I think it's a much more complicated relationship than that. Being aware that there are internal debates in the sciences, that there are paradigm shifts and progress and um, you know, we don't take um, the science of our day as proven fact, these sorts of things. All that being said, though, at the end of the day, if there isn't some kind of connection that we can point to that tracks our experience, then, then what are we doing as theologians and, and where do we expect to go from here? So um, I don't think that should be a terribly radical claim. I think that should be, in some respects, fairly obvious. So um, I'm not looking to the sciences to prove a particular theology, but I do think points of connection, if they don't occur, are really signs that, that something mm -hmm. is wrong here. The other thing that I'd like to say about that is confirmation. I, I struggle with this word, right? Because I think we have a spectrum of options within theology, uh, within the the broad contours of what we would say is historic, orthodox, creedal Christianity mm -hmm. in the most generous way we want to construe that. We have options for thinking about the human person. And um, I do think engaging the sciences can be helpful in negotiating those. That doesn't mean that we're always going to get it right. Um, but I do think it can be helpful there. Right. So. Well, that's, I, I think, yeah, some of the, I'd have to go back again, and I think you use a, a lot of different ways, you characterize this relation between theology and the science in a couple of different ways. So confirmation is one word, but I mean, you use other words, like, I don't know, you know, there has to be some kind of resonance or something. And that's, right. that's a little different than like, look, I'm proving my position to be right, you know, using the sciences. It's like, no, it's, it's helping with the intelligibility of, right. of this theological position. Right. And that, that was something that was also a driving question underlying the, the project, this transformation into the image of God. Is that something that makes sense in terms of who we see ourselves being as humans? Does it make sense of our ordinary lives? Or is it something that's utterly mysterious? Mm. Sort of like waving a magic wand. Um, mm. And people have read the Reformed tradition, I think also the Wesleyan tradition, especially, although I don't really get to um, Wesley in this project, as being mysterious. And so part of my retrieval and constructive account of sanctification is to say, well, there's going to be mystery involved if you want to talk about God's grace. I don't want to reduce or extract mystery from our religious experience. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense in terms of the lives that we live or the, the kinds of creatures that we see ourselves as being. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah, and you have you have a wonderful line somewhere, and I wrote it down, but I I have like twenty pages of writing in front of me, and I'm not gonna be able to find it. But there, you had a wonderful line where you said something like that: that the operation of grace is, I, I um, yeah, let's say there's there's an element of mystery there, but it's not unintelligible. Right, and unintelligible so, is a good word. And, right, and so that's kind of what you're doing with the sciences is to help us see the intelligibility. Right. So why, why, yeah, why don't we just go with that a bit? Like what. What, what are the thing? What are the main things that you gained? Well, you took from the sciences, and I think you, the the primary the primary sciences you turned to they were evolutionary anthropology, and then developmental psychology, right? So, what what were like the main takeaways for you there that helps us with the intelligibility of sanctification from a theological point of view? Yeah. So actually, it's interesting because the way I entered into these 
are was reversed chronologically from how they appear in the book. Oh, interesting. So the original project didn't have an evolution chapter. That was one that I added um, in revisions when I was doing a postdoc. Um, so I just started out with developmental psychology, thinking about the formation of children. And there were a few key takeaways in that literature. But if I had to pick one, I would say the engagement with attachment theory and um, the quality of the parent-child relationship and a responsive parent-child relationship, one where um, intuitively a child just knows that they are accepted and loved unconditionally as um, the context within which really healthy formation takes place. And that's not to say that there's never any pushback, that there are no limits, that there's no discipline, but all of that happens within a particular context. And attachment theory, I think, just articulates that so nicely. Okay, could you maybe say a bit more about uh, attachment theory? That's so I know that's sure, uh, John, John yeah, Bowlby. No. I know, and I, but I don't know the the history of that. Well, anyway, if you want to add anything, you can add on that. Yeah, I mean, so the the basic intuition there is that um, there are different kinds of relationships that parents and or you might say caregivers. It's not just parents. But um, often the research focus has been on mothers and children, but um, you can say caregivers in general, and children form. So children can be in a relationship that, when I say attachment, that is secure, is loving, is um, not threatened. And in those cases, this is, I'm speaking in the voice of the theory here. So in those cases, attached doesn't mean that the children are like clinging to their parents all the time. Like they're not going to mm -hmm. let go of them. It's actually the opposite. It's that foundational relationship that gives them the security to explore the world, to take risks, to learn, to grow in a healthy way. Whereas you can have other different kinds of relations. So an avoidant relationship or an insecure relationship. And these as the theory goes, lead to different sorts of less desirable um, impacts in terms of the children's development and long-term trajectory. So there's all sorts of research on um, what kind of relationship, and I, we can talk about the methodologies for like labeling these relationships if you want to get into that like, kind of granular yeah. level, but research like longitudinal studies that that look at you know ch children who have insecure relationships, and then what kind of um, pathologies, difficulties in development might result from that. So. I see. So then, okay. So mm, I'm tempted to 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 push you on the the evolutionary stuff before answering this question, but maybe, yeah, maybe let, I'll just ask it now. I mean, so okay, tie this back. How can we tie this back to the sanctification thing? The the question of sanctification now. Yeah, so, you know, so much of our religious language is analogical, and I think that the parent-child, specifically the father metaphor, is unavoidable in um, Christian theology broadly construed, and definitely in the relationship or the understanding the doctrine of sanctification. So, you know, Calvin sees knowing that God is your loving parent, your loving father, as crucial to sanctification. It's the foundation of sanctification for him. So it's helpful to study attachment theory and actual empirical relationships between children and parents to sort of explore that analogy a little bit more while still recognizing that it is an analogy. What sorts of psychological implications do we think that that has? And um, this is where I don't talk much about Luther and that particular project, but Luther um, figures more prominently in my more recent work. But Luther and Calvin are, are pretty similar here. There's um, a psychology that they really see as liberating for a person. So faith and assurance of one's salvation and one's acceptance by God 
liberates human action in a way that really parallels what attachment theory is talking about there, providing a foundation for a responsive relationship that is free, that, mm. you know, does not um, get twisted by the motivation of, oh, I have to, like, secure my parents' love or prove that my parent loves me, that kind of thing. You know why I, why I love this so much is that I, I almost read you as saying, look, we should take the children aspect of the New Testament like way more seriously, you know? Um, and we often like say things like, oh, yes, we're supposed to become like children. And, you know, Jesus says stuff like that. But we don't actually, you know, take it very literally. I think you're saying let's take it a little more literally because you're actually our, I think you say at some point again that our humanity is disclosed in children in some ways. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that we are way too prone, and I don't think this is just within theology. I think this is also within the broader culture to separate the humanity of children from the humanity of adults and the psychology of children from the psychology of adults. So like when I'm grown up, I do, I no longer need that security. Do I no longer right. need to know that someone loves me? Um, these things are really visible in childhood, but I don't think that they're only relevant in childhood. Mm. Mm. And so what about what about evolutionary anthropology then? So you so we know okay, you've got attachment theory from from developmental psychology. What does the evolutionary anthropology help help with? Yes. So um this ended up like I didn't go into this thinking I want another discipline to engage. Okay, what's the smorgasbord of disciplines? Which one shall I pick? Like it was very organic in the the fact that the developmental literature was already in really interesting ways engaging the most recent evolutionary theory and that these were speaking to one another and informing one another in really interesting ways. So, for example, um, about five years before I really started this project, Sarah Hurdy published her book Mothers and Others, which is a, a work of evolutionary anthropology, but relies really heavily on John Bowlby and attachment theory. And she's basically arguing that um, cooperative breeding, so um, many human adults being involved in the raising of children was crucial for human evolution and for the flourishing of human children in evolutionary history this made relationships with caregivers like really important from an evolutionary perspective so their selection for um the emotional and psychological and cognitive underpinnings of relationship because we as a species needed lots of people taking care of these children. It couldn't just be the mothers doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that sort of like introduced me to evolutionary anthropology and the way that these disciplines could talk to each other and sort of was, you know, gateway into reading a lot more broadly within that field. So the evolutionary chapter, this is going to actually be a little difficult for me because I'm using evolutionary anthropology in my current research as well. And mm -hmm. so I'm like, okay, I don't, I want to keep these straight. <laughs> Let me remember what I said in the first book about evolutionary <laughs> anthropology and not confuse it with the second book. Um, but basically, the evolutionary anthropology is emphasizing the importance of cooperative relationships to who we are as human beings. So not just parent-child relationships, but those are certainly really important, as well as other caregiver-child relationships. So that, that was what I focused on in the evolutionary literature in the first book, because my focus was on children. But it's highlighting the way that we as human beings are creatures who become. We um, 
have an openness in our being. We don't enter the world fully formed. And it's actually really important for our success as a species that we don't enter the world fully formed, that we mm -hmm. develop and we develop in a caregiving context, in a cultural context that allows us, has allowed us as a species to live in really very different ways. Um, so we've been able to live in many different, of course, ecological habitats and different cultural forms. I mean, in some ways, these are cliches, but when you think about the flexibility of the human person and the openness of the human person, that's really kind of non-negotiable if you want to talk about the possibility of sanctification, if you want to mm -hmm. talk about the possibility of... Um, human beings being in the image of Christ when we're not now, that mm -hmm. we are not this fixed, rigid thing, and that that transformation, that becoming as a species happens in our social context. Um, so, yeah. And, yeah, I was, I was, I was, yeah, maybe push, I'll push you a bit to talk about the, um, and we can trans transition you as well to you, to new work too. The, um, Affect hunger. So I know you use a lot of um, Walter Goldschmidt's work. Yes. So I know you like that very much too with the, for the sanctification project. So I don't know if you want right. to say something about that. Yeah. So Goldschmidt um, wrote this really small, fascinating book towards the end of his life um, on this hunger that we have for affect. And what he means by this is. Um, some kind of recognition within our social context. And he sees this as really driving much of, if not all of, human behavior. So Goldschmidt breaks this down into two different forms. He says we satisfy this drive either through belonging, and there he means these intimate, physical, embodied relationships like children with their parents, but not strictly limited to children with their parents. But just close relationships where um, your accomplishments are not what is at stake. There's just a belonging that's just kind of given. Um, and the other way that we satisfy this drive is through performance. If I have some kind of accomplishment, like, you know, maybe I write a book and people like it, then yeah. I feel like good about myself. <laughs> like, yeah, Sally Field, people like me. They really like me. But that <laughs> performance-driven um, sense of accomplishment is very different from belonging. And when I first read this, it just struck me as a really fascinating parallel to like reformation era debates about faith and merit mm. um and so that that sort of like sparked my interest in pursuing that more which then led me into the mm. second project so then when, mm. when we get to talk about that i'll say more yeah okay so so interesting so the the idea there is that with the affect hunger stuff, and then we have so we have a hunger for belonging, and I think your emphasis again you know, for your project on sanctification is falling into that um, area, right? You are interested in that thing because that also can be overlooked a lot by, let's say, our own context now, where everyone's about independency and I don't know, and performance, right. and pro proving yourself to be wonderful, and yeah, and and we often tend to put moral formation in that performance category, right? Like, mm -hmm. am I acting in ethically way ethically you know consistent good ways well that's that's performance um but the the way this project developed you're absolutely right it put more emphasis on the belonging component as a foundation for mm. action that that could be different mm. yeah no, I, I, I think it's wonderful because the way you just put it there, I think it's really provocative because part of the moral life then, what part of the well, part of sanctification, which includes moral transformation, is getting right that belonging thing. And belonging that belongingness might also take some kind of effort, you know, like, okay, I don't want to put it that way. Mm -hmm. But you have to practice the, the love of 
love God's parental love for you in some ways. Cause that doesn't, yes. you know, it's not always easy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And this is, you're absolutely right about that. This is where I didn't want to like reject practices or reject habituation. You know, these are necessary facets of life, necessary facets of, you know, human religious expression. So like, what is this relationship to God? Like, how does it exist? What kind of space does it occupy? Well, you can't talk about that if you're not going to talk about practices, if you're not going to talk about like actually going to a worship service or mm -hmm. you know praying <laughs> or any right. number of other corporate or individual spiritual mm -hmm. practices um those are immensely important but here's the thing like we can do those types of things we can engage in those practices um in a variety of different ways and with different kinds of motivation, you know? Um, I could go to church all of my life as a practice and it actually have very little meaning for me. Right. And so it's not, I don't think it's a given that engaging in practices is necessarily going to lead to belonging for example. Mm. Um, so it's important to analyze those not only from the perspective of practices, but also from the, the broader psychological perspective, really. Right. Okay, so we should probably get onto your current research. Um, okay. Yeah, because I, I mean, I have, yeah, I, I, I have a lot more questions for you on that front, and I Maybe we can talk about it some other point, but I have you. I don't know if you've read Tanya Lerman's um, mm -hmm. work because I think the this of two is, minds or the one on well, evangelical the one, faith. Yeah, there's one on when God speaks back, and then um, mm -hmm. when God talks back, and then I think the most recent one is um, how God becomes real. And so she talks a lot oh, about. Oh, I, I have not read that. I'm yeah, I to... I think you will love it because there she talks about practices of like kindling practices where you and they're very psychological where you try practice being loved by God in the kind of unconditional parental way that you're talking about. And she she mm -hmm. she mentions these as kinds of practices. Um, and I just love that you're 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 challenging people to think about that as part of moral transformation within the context of sanctification. I I just think it's wonderful that. Um, and again, it gives me like, it, it takes the be like little children and stuff of the New Testament much more seriously in a way that I, again, I just love it. I think it's provocative and it's very helpful. You know, her, I don't know if you've read it, but her um, earlier work of Two Minds on, um, on mental health and sort of a medical approach as, as opposed to a um, psychiatric therapeutic approach. It hits on some of these exact same issues and the potential of the therapist patient relationship to sort of have the same kind mm. of role comes across in that work too. So just mm. to flag that for you. Oh, great. I think you and I could like geek out on, on anthropology stuff for a long time. <laughs> we probably <laughs> could. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so why, why don't we go to the current work? So the current project is 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 your work now for the Collaborative Inquiries in, in Christian Theological Anthropology Project, and um, I don't know how far into it you are. Um, I've you know I've read obviously a few chapters from your work. So again, I take it as a, another constructive project, and this time though you're focusing on the reformed psychology of grace and you're trying to give a, another constructive interdisciplinary take on this so why don't you yeah give us a little sense of what this project is it's also a project in social ethics i know that's where it's it's aimed at um so yeah so what is the reformed psychology of grace i think it's we've already touched upon it i think yeah but right. maybe yeah so i'll say like the the common thread in terms of the like driving questions with the first project and this project is this question of Reformation theologies of grace, although I'm not limiting this project to just a Reformation approach, but it does feature prominently, and their implications for human action or human agency. Um, this newer project specifically asks, what would a robust theological commitment to grace 
mean for flourishing human communities, for how we structure our institutions and for how we um, engage with one another, not just at the familial level, but more broadly speaking in, in the different levels of social engagement, so social interaction. So um, there's also sort of a common structure here. I start with the theology and that's an intentional mm -hmm. methodological choice because I don't want the science to be driving the theology. So I start with the theology and looking at what actually is grace in the Christian tradition and what's the distinctive Reformation aspect of that. And that's where I get to this Reformation psychology of grace. So Luther and Calvin feature prominently here, but then Karl Barth as a 20th century figure who I think in many ways is emphasizing a lot of the same points. And so just a key aspect of this is that there is a psychological component to grace. There's also just a normative component or an ontological component. Um, Luther and Calvin don't want to reduce what Christ has done to simply being important for human psychology. But they do think it's really crucial that a human person actually recognize that grace is active in their life and respond to that as a gift of God, as an action of God. So not just receiving grace at a theoretical level, but that actually having implications for their life, for their behavior, for thinking about human relationships, for, for all of this. I don't know how much you want me to like continue into the argument of the book, but you asked uh, um, specifically about the Reformation psychology of grace. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, um, well, yeah, I guess. The, so the question again here, and it's a similar structure to your previous book, as you just mentioned, you have to decide, well, you want to, you have to first say, why are you going to the sciences? And then you have to decide which sciences you're going to go to. So again, I'm kind of wondering yeah, how you were thinking about this. You're, it seems like you're already reading broadly in anthropology and psychology. So it was probably very, you didn't have to think about it that much. There was just so much literature there. Um, but I don't, know, I don't know if you had something yeah, more I would say thought the out. Main you know. difference. So I knew I wanted to use an evolutionary perspective. Um, with perhaps a little bit less of a focus on children this time. And what I'm emphasizing more heavily in this engagement with the evolutionary literature is the theme of interdependence. So um, that our survival as a species is a together survival. Um, our evolution as a species has come about as a together phenomenon, not as an individual phenomenon. And so interdependence, I think, has interesting kind of secular analogs to theological notions of grace, because you can't really imagine these early human communities working on like a strictly merit-based approach to their communal life. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's just a sense of givenness and response that's taking place there. Um, so I knew I wanted to do the evolutionary anthropology angle with a slightly different focus. And then um, because I'm focusing so much on Reformation psychology, Psychology was also a natural fit as an interlocutor, but this time I didn't want to focus on children uh, explicitly. So this time I want to actually say, okay, these like patterns that I noticed in the psychology of children, like do these actually recur in our adult psychology and in what ways? Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm focusing more explicitly on the research with adults. Of course, as you know, so much of this research research is actually conducted with college students, which is another question entirely, right. but it's definitely not small children. And so um, I allude to the earlier research and there are connections with child development, but I'm really focusing on um, adult psychology here and social psychology. Right. So maybe, yeah, I'd like to talk with you a bit about the evolutionary stuff. I mean, that I'm more comfortable in that um, 
in that area myself and I'm I'm interested in what you're doing. Cause I I take there's a part in, in the, the chapters you sent me where you're coming up against the issue of human nature and essentialism because I, I you know you're you are saying well let's lo- let's look at the our evolutionary origins and why because you you're going to push there and say well it is it does get to something like mm, human nature in and of itself or at least the sciences can give us some kind of shared framework by which we can talk um, to each other and I know that can be these days quite a little controversial. So I, I don't know if you, um, you know, people don't like this, um, anything that gets near some sort of like human nature, essentialism kind of talk is going to, is going to bother people, you know? So I wonder, yeah. I wonder how you, you know, if you, if, if what you would say in response to this kind of worry, you know, like you're using, you're using the sciences to get at human nature, but this is problematic, da, 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 or something. Yeah. I mean, you know, okay. So maybe you're right to push me on this. I might not be giving enough attention to this question of essentialism, but I'll tell you how I'm thinking about it. And um, the evolutionary literature is actually super helpful here because it actually helps explain why we have so much variety in expressions of our humanity. It helps us Mm -hmm. explain why we find essentialist talk actually um to be so problematic for human nature i'm using scare quotes and of course this is a podcast so shame on me but anyway um (laughs) yeah so um i I think what an evolutionary framework then is uniquely perhaps capable of offering is a way of explaining why essentialism is so problematic Mm-hmm. But then also still talking about a shared human nature, mm-hmm. a shared human nature that is very difficult to reduce to too many essentials, although it can point to some. Right. Okay. No, I, I totally agree with you on that one. Um, I just know this is where, you know, things get so tricky these days when you... Um... Yeah, uh, yeah, you, you noticed it a fact, bit within. Um, so, go on. Yeah, actually, so I published an essay that was sort of exploratory for this project um, on the question of work and human flourishing and the flourishing of families, and was you know uncritically using human nature language because I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to do this. <laughs> and got totally, like, from reviewers, like, you can't do this. You can't see, use yeah. that language. So, yeah, yeah no, I definitely hear you. So. But then on the other hand, I mean, I feel like those, those kind of critiques, on the other hand, or at least, you know, to make generalizations, yeah, the kind of people who might launch those kinds of critiques, I think are going to be totally on your side, though, in the way you're using evolution anthropology by pointing to things like interdependency and vulnerability. So, I mean, that's... You oh, know, I hope you, so. Yeah, I, I could be wrong, but I think, you know, that's... I think people will go along with you there. So, yeah. Anyways, well, let's not get bogged down in that question. I mean, let me let me phrase... Let me pose another question this way. I, well, not really a question. It's, it's a kind of framing thing. Let's see what you think. I mean, I, I see it as a structural parallel between your two works um, in this way. Like, the first work did look at children. It focused on children. The second work here, okay, this is a really problematic way of putting it, but I'll say it anyways. Like the infancy of our of our species, so to speak, you know? It's not like we're okay. more mature now as a species. You know what I'm saying? The origin of our species and that's it. Right. That, well, I mean, if you, if you use children the way I do, children is disclosing uh, our humanity, then I don't think it's problematic to say the infancy of our species. So Right. So I think that's kind of what you're doing. It's, a, it's like, let's look there. And oh, you know what we see? We see a lot of this hyper-independency, vulnerability, and yeah, hyper-privity. Yeah, that's a you know? really helpful way of putting it. I'm going to write this down. Let me pause <laughs> just a moment. <laughs> infancy <laughs> of our species. <laughs> and so that, yeah, so there... And in, in, now when you think about the unique capacities we have, let's say, as, of, as humans, like at Mark Human Nature, you're contextualizing it in that context of hyperdependency, vulnerability, etc. And that's, that I find to be very helpful. And I, I can't imagine many people are going to be upset with you about that. 
Good. I, I hope that's right. So, I mean, just for the listener who might not be predicting where this project is going, what I want to then do is say, if we have this interdependency, this vulnerability, which theologically is rooted in our foundational dependence on God, what does that mean? What are the implications for how we think about our lives together? Like, to get really practical, what does that mean for how we think about employment, labor, our, our jobs? You know, in our culture, so many of us are trained, indoctrinated maybe, um, pressured oh, to, totally, find yeah. within, yeah. to find within our labor our sense of self-worth. But not only that, our security, our ability to accomplish things for ourselves. And we see our independence in that as really crucial, um, making claims for ourselves and, and what we have accomplished. And I think that we're really encouraged to think in this way. Um, but what I want to ask, and this is where the psychological component gets in, but that's sort of what I'm working on right now, so I might not be able to articulate this as clearly. But what I want to say is that that cultural way of framing this is kind of pushing against that underlying insight we get from the infancy of our humanity about our interdependence. And it's actually harming our relationships and it's harming our work. It, it, to go back to Luther's terminology, our work is not free. Think about us as academics. Is not free if my academic labor is serving the goal of establishing me as a valuable human being and not serving the goal of exploring questions and, and seeking truth. Mm. Um, they're, they're, mm. they're at cross purposes here, or at least potentially in tension with one another. And so by not recognizing culturally and socially and in our institutions, a more graced fundamental sense of human worth and belonging, and putting so much of that onto our labor, I think we're really distorting our work and having negative impacts on our relationships and negative social impacts as well. So that's just an example of sort of how I see some of these things playing out in the social aspect. I see. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, you know, I, I think there's this really interesting question about origin stories too here. Like, why do origin stories matter? And it seems like, you know, we don't know for certain what our human origins were. We get, we're getting a bit of picture of it, I guess, in some ways from archaeology and anthropology or whatnot. But there seems to be this push or, uh, or pull for each generation to tell something about its origins, right? And what, you know, the, origin, the origin story for a while, and it's still dominating one now, is that, well, humans were just this amazing, technologically innovated species. And and you find this among like people who love tech development stuff, you know, it's like, look, that's who we are by nature. We just these these animals who love innovation and technology. And it's like, yeah, OK, in some ways, but um, maybe that's okay. a little bit skewed. But they want to tell themselves an origin story there to justify the way, you know, the way we live now. So I think we just have to keep yeah. telling ourselves the, the origin stories. I think this is just a very a deep need we have. And we just have to keep doing it over and over again. And your one is challenging to the to the larger kind of I don't know context that we live in now, which you were just talking about, with where we see our worth in terms of work and et cetera. Yeah, or in terms of our innovations. Yeah, right, right, exactly. So. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the people who are telling that story happen to usually be pretty creative types who have done some innovating and yeah, and making and making. Right, or making more money from it than any of us could really imagine. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, an interesting dimension to this has also been Joseph Henrik's work on evolutionary history uh, and its overlap with trust. And I don't know if you've, if you've encountered his work. I haven't, but, no. uh, Yeah, so part of his argument is, yeah, we innovate, but that's only possible because we can culturally pass along these innovations. And the innovations, actually, for, for most of human history, have been somewhat slow. I mean, how long did we have, you know, Acheulean uh, technology for stone tools, mm -hmm. that kind of thing? The innovations have mostly been slow. 
And we adopt them without knowing the reasons why, which is fascinating. Mm. You know, cultures pass on traditional knowledge and it, it seems to be, again, I'm going to use the problematic phrase, human nature, to take this wisdom and continue using it and passing it on and not necessarily questioning it unless it's problematic in some way, proved to be problematic experientially. So there's that fundamental element of trust. Yeah, we're innovators, but that's only possible because we trust one another, which I think has just all sorts of like fascinating implications given right. the way that, that social trust is right now. So. Mm. Well, Angela, I don't want to keep you because we're we're almost at the hour mark here. Um, okay. So, look, it was really wonderful to talk to you. Uh, I really enjoyed this, and I, I I'm actually I'm genuinely really looking forward to to the book. So, well, has, thank you so much, and I have to tell you, I am really looking forward to it too. It's <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> a, a work in progress, and you probably can tell it's so much easier to talk about the one that's that's already done because sometimes you. You really don't figure out what you need to say until you've tried to say it a few times. So it's probably right. pretty evident that the, the second project is still in that sort of interim phase, but I'm really enjoying it too. So thanks so much for the conversation and, uh, you know, for um, engaging it so you know seriously. So thanks. Of course. Of course. No problem. Bye. That's all for this episode. For more information about our project, Collaborative Inquiries in Christian Theological Anthropology, visit our website at theologyandscience.org. Thanks for listening.